Hey everyone, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where we talk about the stock market and the economy, amongst other things. This is the Everything That You Need to Know series, a series of different primaries where we break down everything that you need to know about the stock market, the crypto market, and the economy. The way that this episode is structured is for the first couple of minutes, I'm going to talk about everything that's happening in the energy markets. If you want to go ahead and subscribe, that is a capital investment in the Kyla channel infrastructure. I spoke about oil last week, but there's a lot of evolution around the Iran nuclear deal, as well as the sell-off in oil that happened on Friday, and a little bit more information on energy prices over in Europe. So I'm going to talk about all that. Then I brought Ben Wheeler on, D1 Wheeler on Twitter, highly recommend you go follow him, to dive a little bit deeper into the geopolitical sphere. So what's going on with Russia and Ukraine? What's going on with China? <laughs> what's going on just in general? So if you really want a deep dive on everything geopolitical, recommend that you go listen to that. If you're just like, Kyla, what's happening today? I'm going to talk about that today. I'm going to talk about the Iran nuclear deal, the oil market movement since the Friday sell-off, and then some thoughts regarding the structural misbalance there, then some more thoughts on the energy situation over in Europe. All right, Iran nuclear situation. So there was a 2015 deal that was basically like, okay, Iran, you can sort of play around with uranium. Uranium is a way to make nuclear weapons. You don't want people enriching uranium past a certain percentage point because essentially you're just on a fast track to get nukes at that point. And so the whole goal with the Obama administration who put this 2015 deal together along with other nations was the idea that uh, Iran would be allowed to enrich uranium, but only to 3.67%, which is needed for civilian purposes, but much lower than would be needed for a weapon. Essentially, they can't make nukes as quickly. And then in 2018, President Trump was like, no, no thanks. <laughs> and he reimposed the sanctions that the US had lifted on Iran. When Trump reimposed the sanctions back in 2018, he cut off most of Iran's oil sales. So Iran was just, it's an economic sanction, right? So they weren't able to do a whole lot of global trade. When other countries came out and spoke against this, when the EU, China, and Russia were like, hey, what the heck are you doing, dude? The US was like, hey, anybody that's doing business with Iran, we're also going to cut you off from the US. And so they sanctions ended up being pretty economically crippling. Iran was like, okay, well, you know, if you renege on the negotiations, we're just going to go forward. And they keep on advancing atomically. They keep on doing more and more work around this. And so it seems like they're trying to enrich to the point where they're going to make a nuclear weapon. Everyone's like, ah, you should chill out there. They've produced a uranium metal, both enriched to 20% and not enriched. Western powers are a little bit concerned about that situation because uranium metal is obviously a fast track towards producing bombs, and no country has ever produced uranium metal without eventually making bombs. Iran has also decided not to comply at all to the nuclear deal that was instated. They have prevented inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency from entering its nuclear sites, so they're not allowing people to see what they're developing which is a big red flag. And they have stockpiled more uranium than the deal allows and obviously have enriched it well beyond what they would be expected to if they were just using it for civilian purposes. So it's kind of like, okay, we can put two and two together. The US just abandoned this whole deal, you know, three years ago. It's kind of a bad situation. And what's happening today is that they're revisiting this. They're like, okay, Iran, what have you been up to? What's going on? The US is not there today. They're going to have message relayed to them from the other countries that are going 
to the Austrian capital to discuss this. So it's Iran, China, France, Germany, Russia, and the United Kingdom are all there discussing this. And if successful, the talks will lift the U.S. sanctions while scaling back Iran's nuclear program. Both Iran and the U.S. are coming into the talks with sort of their own game plan. Yikes, right? Yikes. They have a new president over in Iran, and the new president is like, hey, dude, you know, you put us through the ringer for the past couple of years. We're mad about it, and we want you to lift all sanctions. The U.S. is like, well, no, you know, you've done some bad things, both from a human rights and a terrorism perspective, right? Should be punished for that. And that's really the big issue. So this is also an interesting note is other members of the Gulf Cooperation Council have come out and been like, yes, we do support restoration of the nuclear deal. Whereas previously they were like, no, Trump, this is ready. Maximum pressure against Iran. So more and more people are like, okay, we should probably open up Iran's economy. Probably what will happen is it'll be a partial deal. So the U.S. probably will keep some sanctions on Iran. Iran is probably going to have to say that they're going to pull back on some element of developing a nuclear weapon. There's probably going to be some, hopefully, midway agreement. The big important part of this, like, why do we care if Iran comes back online? The big important part about this is that Iran obviously has oil. They have oil output. If there can be more oil coming to the market from Iran, that is going to put downward pressure on oil prices and make oil more accessible. I'm going to talk about the structure of the oil markets and why that might be important, but that is sort of how you can think about it, is that we have structural gap in terms of oil output in Iran could help with that. But we will see what the outcome of that is. So what does all that mean for oil markets? Well, yes. So as I talked about last week, the main thing is a structural underinvestment in oil markets. And that's really the big issue that everybody's running into right now. It's like, okay, we can talk about, you know, increasing output as much as we want, but there's a structural misalignment here. And we've gotten really complacent around commodities because things have gotten so cheap over the past several years. It's kind of like, well, you know, sure, we can keep on producing oil. Sure, we don't, we don't have to invest. Like, things are cheap. Things are good. With oil, the market went way down on Friday because of news of the Omicron variant. The market way overreacted. This is from Capital One. Uh, today's oil price drop is pricing in 4.2 million demand drop, which is equal to 10 times the Delta variant's impact in Q3 2021, or equivalent to 25% of the global lockdown demand hit in April 2020 for an entire quarter. So it was a little bit of a over-response just because we don't exactly know how this new variant is going to impact the market in terms of how transmissible it is, how the vaccines are responsive to it. Saudi Arabia and OPEC Plus, they were meant to have a meeting uh, earlier this week, but they moved it back to later this week because of the news of the variant. So OPEC Plus, so that includes OPEC and Russia and a few other countries, is going to meet on December 2nd to discuss whether to proceed with the scheduled oil output hike for January. They get together and they're like, all right, is it time for us to increase production? Are oil prices high enough? (laughs) Saudi Arabia is not concerned about the new variants of COVID. Russia is not really worried about it either. Both Russia and Saudi Arabia, they're not worried about the fallout from COVID. And because of that, they're probably not going to increase production. And if they don't increase production, we will see upward pressure in oil prices. Another thing that is sort of worrying about OPEC is they don't want to increase production because they already have problems with spare capacity. Bison Interest wrote a really good paper on this. OPEC plus spare capacity is insufficient amid a global energy crisis. So spare capacity is essentially the ability of a factory or industry, so here the oil markets, to produce more of a product that is now being produced. So essentially they have literally no upside. It's just this global underinvestment in supply chains. It's really creating a lot of problems. You have surging demand, you have tight inventories, and there just isn't enough oil to go around, which is really bad. Sure, they can increase output, but 
Can they? Can they? JP Morgan came out with a note. Uh, even OPEC Plus is not immune to the impacts of underinvestment. We estimate true capacity in 2022 to be way below consensus estimates. Spare capacity is expected to fall to 4% from an average of 14% and well below the 10% comfort level. JP Morgan is like, we think that oil prices are going to be $125 a barrel in 2022 and $150 a barrel in 2023 for our contacts it's certainly trading around $80 so that would be quite a steep increase and Morgan Stanley is also in the consistent so everybody's like oil prices are going to increase because literally there is just not enough capital investment in sort of the refineries the infrastructure the storage processes and that's kind of the situation that we're in is they're just not able to potentially produce enough to sort of meet the level of demand and if they can't meet the level of demand prices are going to rise and Elizabeth Warren she tweeted out back in 2019 on my first day as president I will sign an executive order that puts a total end on all fossil fuel leases for drilling offshore and on public lands and I will ban fracking everywhere and then just the other day she tweets out big oil companies number one priority is profit so of course these greedy giants are jacking up prices for consumers even as fuel costs drop We've got to call it out and fight back. We cannot have green energy policy without green energy investment. We just can't. We just can't have green energy policy without green energy investment. That's not how it works. Then the question becomes, oh, Kyla, why don't we just go to EVs and clean energy metal stuff? Lithium is a very key input in electric vehicles, and China is eating all of that up. The price of lithium carbonate has more than tripled since January, so adding around $470 to the cost of making a battery-powered car. So China's just eating up all the lithium and there we still have to have oil <laughs> um, to a certain degree to, to sort of like get all of this stuff done. And it's just something that we have to think about uh, with regards to how we do policy around both green energy investment and oil. And then there's energy prices in Europe. So this is just not good. So limited natural gas exports from Russia have pushed European prices to all-time highs with UK and other European alternative energy power generation disappointing and proving unreliable. Also, Asian economies have had to shut down power in blackout cities just sky high electricity prices over in Europe just because uh, there's not enough coming in from Russia and there's not enough alternative power generations. Sometimes the wind doesn't blow. Uh, this is from Horizon Kinetics. It's a very good thread on this. Energy demand is inelastic. You need it now if you need it and if sufficient supply is unavailable then that price determines the new equilibrium. So people will pay to heat their homes. This is sort of a non-negotiable. It's inelastic. It's like medicine. This is why natural gas prices are so important is because they are so inelastic. This is sort of potentially a leading indicator for what could happen with oil here in the U.S. So from Horizon, what's beginning to happen with natural gas now is quite possible a preview of the same dynamic with oil once inventories are drawn down. Will the U.S. have oil costs go up 300% as well to $150 a barrel? And we know that's what JPM is pricing in for 2023. So it's just a very volatile market right now. Oil is a critical need commodity and if you have demand that's outstripping supply, prices are going to follow that. So natural gas is just absolutely spiking. It's up 400% year-to-date in Europe. It's up 100% year-to-date in the United States. Commodity prices are up across the board. And what happened, the theory is that a decline in commodity prices led to lower capital investment because it's just cheaper to do stuff. And also you weren't maybe getting the ROI as a producer that you wanted because commodities were so cheap. You don't invest as much. You draw down your reserves, you draw down capacity. And the issue with commodities is they have a very long investment cycle. So if you're not 
investing, it's going to create long-term problems because you have to invest so much upfront. So it's a structural supply shortage and it really gets down to investment, R&D, capital infrastructure. Ben and I will dive into some of the geopolitical issues that backdrop all of this, but that is somewhat the state of the energy markets. And that, of course, feeds into inflation numbers and, of course, feeds into the public brain. Ben and I will do a little deep dive for you, but that is what's going on. And I will not talk any longer, but thanks so much for hanging out. Well, Ben, <laughs> thanks so much for joining me again. So excited to have you back to sort of chat about everything geopolitical that's going on. There's just been a lot of noise overseas and also within seas. So I thought it'd be really good just like chat about everything that's happening. Of course, always happy to be back, Kyla. The world <laughs> is falling apart uh, every minute now. It is uh, a lot of chat overseas, China, Russia, uh, even Turkey and yeah. Africa, um, and even here in the United States. So you, you can't win, right? You're yeah. not safe anywhere. I guess on Mars. We could go with Elon. But yeah, I think I'd deal with Elon Musk though. Well, we could have the Olympics on Mars instead of in China. So so can you give us a rundown on, on what's going going on in, in China with regards to all this? Yes. So China has a has a long list of what the human rights project calls crimes against humanity. And the sum up what crimes against humanity are. So war crimes, right? are crimes committed in war. Crimes against humanity are war crimes, but during peacetime. And China's got a long list of crimes against humanity committing. And this has prompted a larger discussion of, should there be a boycott? And it started back in April of 2021 for the 2022 Olympics, which start in February. The originally the Biden administration says, oh, we weren't considering it, but everyone's like, you're considering it. And then Peng Shui, tennis star, gets kidnapped. Something happens to her. No one really knows what happened to her, but China seemed to believe that they can make their Me Too movement disappear by disappearing her. And it backfired, like dramatically. People were not quiet about it. And so now they are like in a rush to assure everyone she's still alive. But that's still not enough, especially for the WTA who's saying, we have no proof that she's not being coerced or held against her will. But they're so desperately trying to prove that she's okay. Yeah. And I mean, they've done this before with Jack Ma and a couple of different actresses. Do you feel like this is sort of a domino, like a tipping point? For China, if the U.S. does pull out of the Olympics, a la like Russia, right? Like what's going to be on the other side of that, if anything? I would be skeptical to see the United States do a full boycott like they did in 1980, Jimmy Carter and the Afghanistan invasion. I don't think that'll happen because the American public gets really weird about that thing where they'll all agree that there should be a boycott, but then they'll also agree that we shouldn't punish the athletes. They'll say, well, it's not fair to the athletes, right? It's not fair, but genocide is also not fair. I think those do a diplomatic boycott. And I think China will have a conniption fit over it, as they said they would. Mm -hmm. And everyone will be like, why does this matter so much to you? China will say, we don't rely on the West for our validation. And then get really mad when they don't show up to the Olympics. So actions speak louder than words, right? Yes. To the the point about actions, the Tennis Association has really been the first group that's really done anything about this. The NBA remained relatively quiet. Like some of the players in the NBA got trouble for speaking out against it. Then Wall Street has remained really quiet. Hollywood has remained really quiet. Do you think there's going to be other organizations that are going to start pushing China on this narrative? Or is it just going to be like this continued diplomatic sort of negotiation? WTA was put in a position where essentially they cared about their player, right? But also more deeply, it is the Women's Tennis Association. And if one of their athletes just spoke out about their essay experience with CCP party member, and then they disappeared, Steve Simon, he put pretty bluntly is that if we don't do something now, we'll be boycotted by women in democracies. If we do stick up something, we'll lose our relationship with China. But he says that, you know, one is obviously more favorable to the other. 
And he's 100% right about that. And so I think other companies will be faced the same thing. When this comes up and they're eventually haunted by the CCP <laughs> stepping on rakes, they will have <laughs> to, you know, come to the conclusion of, do we risk being boycotted back home in America? <laughs> or do we just abandon China? This Peng Shui thing is more serious than anything that ever happened. Even the NBA mm-hmm. over the whole, oh, sure. yeah, over the whole Rockets owner tweeting about Hong Kong. This is, someone was kidnapped or something happened to them. If the pressure builds up and you come January and the question of punctuate is only bigger, then yeah, I, yeah, American companies probably dial up the pressure. But China will be in that weird spot there, right? As you know, they do not care. There is no corporation bigger than the Chinese government and they, China will let their own companies fail to prove a point. So there's really no reason to think they'd bow down. That's what they've been doing essentially all year. Like they smushed Tencent, like they smushed the for-profit education companies, all the gaming companies. Um, They've just been on like a tirade to shape, the government has been to to shape China into what they think it should be. How long can that continue or is that going to continue? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. They do deserve some credit in that they they went from 88% poverty to like Mm -hmm. 0.7% poverty in like less than 30 years. That's something worth praising, but they've also, to a certain extent, lost their mind in trying mm-hmm. to keep this. And, but in addition to that, think about the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. That China we saw then is completely mm-hmm. different than the one we saw now. And they're banning spectators because of the COVID at the, at the 2022 Olympics. But if there wasn't COVID, does anyone actually think China would allow spectators? And if the answer is no, then why are they still getting the Olympics, right? So I was actually thinking, why did they get the Olympics? So they wouldn't like, is that a bid process? Do you know a lot about that? Yeah, it's a bidding process. It's so a bidding bid. process. You have to like put forth a plan and build projects for it and stuff like that. And then your city gets mm-hmm. chosen. It's becoming kind of becoming like a status thing now for like developing nations and also nations that are on their like way back up right uh, because the olympics as you know economically they don't pay off long term you yeah. build these things people are there for two weeks and they leave yeah. it's usually reserved for places that are trying to improve their image True. france wants to show their global power again so now they have the olympics in 2024 china says you know we're here so they had the Olympics in 2022 you know brazil 2016 mm-hmm. that's kind of what that is with china too and they seem to love like sort of developing ghost real estate so like the whole situation with evergrande like that was just a bunch of empty apartment <laughs> buildings so it kind of makes sense they probably have the, the skill set right. to build like empty empty spaces for <laughs> olympic athletes is there anything else happening in china around the world what else is going on all of china's moves rely on pleasing a domestic audience they demand that these moves they make domestically to please their domestic people the West must respect them. And so you get into like this really weird territory, whereas the situation in China deteriorates or spirals or people aren't happy, then they start gearing it up towards Taiwan, right? And then the Taiwan thing is such a sensitive issue to them. But now they're threatening Lithuania over allowing Taiwan to have an embassy. Lithuania has like four people in it and their <laughs> entire economy is like one dude's farm. So I don't understand why they're going after a country that small, especially it's so far away, right? They're really trying to gear up for war of Taiwan or in some way taking Taiwan. We all know that it's going to be sooner rather than later when that happens. And right. I guess it's just like, when is it going to happen? How is it going to happen? No, you're absolutely right. Last year, Senator Corwin from Texas made a remark that we had 30,000 troops in Taiwan. Everyone's kind of like, what are you on about, right? Like, that's not true. Mm-hmm. And then earlier this year, it was revealed that we had at least you know, a certain amount of troops uh, who were 
doing like special forces training in Taiwan. So it wouldn't shock me if we had more there, especially since Santa Corin said something coming out of a, you know, an intelligence meeting, they had 30,000 troops there. Where are they? Right. But China's whole thing is they don't actually care if there are 30,000 troops there. So long as their domestic audience doesn't know, because otherwise it hurts their projection of force. Right. So basically Taiwan is, you know, stuck in this position of having to defend themselves. The United States is pretty clear about that. They will defend them. So is Japan. And China knows no matter what, they're going to be up against the United States and Japan, at least. And then you have to count in France will also be there. The United Kingdom, Australia, there's talks of India somehow getting involved. And that's not a world war, but that's a lot of people in one spot, right? And uh, China does not care if Japan and the United States are setting up defenses in Taiwan ahead of time, so long as their domestic audience doesn't find out. China's never really cared so long as their domestic audience to find out. Because what does that send to, yeah, Chinese population that? And a lot of China is about like controlling the narrative, controlling the stream of information to their people. So there's these simmering tensions happening in China. And then of course there's simmering tensions over in Russia and the Ukraine. Yeah. What's going on there? (laughs) So if you remember back April this year, and then also Belarus and then the Russo-Ukrainian border. Uh, Ukraine is not in NATO, but they go straight in to Ukraine with a full-scale invasion. NATO will be involved, just simply put, because what does that say to everyone else that's on the board there, right? If Russia's coming full steam ahead, plowing through Ukraine, yeah, not, not ideal for the rest of Europe, especially poor little Lithuania, who yeah. will now oh. share a border with Russia, right? Can't catch so, a break. Yeah. They can't catch a break. Well, granted, they pick the fights themselves. Will they actually invade? I don't know. It's a big provocation. Uh, Putin does this a lot, but they've yeah. never had intelligence to the level where they're like, they're going to invade. And who invades in the middle of winter? I guess Russia of all places, right? But I feel like Russia would be the one country that would do right. that. Yeah. Well, when did, right. isn't that when they got Napoleon during winter? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Napoleon started his campaign during the summer and then mm-hmm. got caught there during the winter. It's uh, maybe they would do it, but I don't, I don't know. But the Ukrainian military is significantly different than they were in 2014 when they lost Crimea. Uh, They are trained and they are well-equipped and it will not be an easy fight, especially now they have this drone fleet. Well, and the reason that Russia wants Ukraine, is it just the land or is it resources? It's a buffer. So Russia has this narrative. So the United States and Europe's narrative is that Russia wants to push all the way to the Atlantic, take France, take Portugal take Spain, and then take the UK and Ireland. That's their narrative there. And that Russia verif- like solidifies that narrative by being an imperialist power when they were the USSR. And then in addition to that, also by taking Ukraine and uh, attempting to take Georgia in 2008. So that is the US-European narrative, is that Russia is imperialist. Now, the Russian narrative's counter to that is that Russia acknowledges that what it did was the USSR was probably not the greatest kind of wrong right but they believe that they're being surrounded by nato because nato wants to invade them right so it's it's oh. easy to look and like scoff at that and be like how can anyone think that yeah if you're vladimir putin you can because now you're being encircled by nato right it, mongolia is a nato partner the united states is all up in europe's business they have yeah. 400 nukes on the continent so they believe they're being encircled and so by ukraine trying to join NATO, mm-hmm. 
it puts NATO right on their borders. And Russia already views it offensive enough that the Baltics are also in NATO. So, and they're right on Russia's border. And so that's also why Finland and Sweden are not in NATO because they kind of know how that would go, right? Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily want to be that close, especially when Russia's laid down its red line. So Russia's whole grounds for invading would be that the West isn't respecting their red lines. And the West argument back to that is, well, Ukraine is its own independent country. You don't get to draw a red line to determine what, what decisions they make or what they don't make. Can you just delineate the two, two narratives? What's the main difference between the two? They're inversed, right? If you are Russia, NATO is surrounding you. And why else would they be surrounding you, right? And if you're the United States and Europe, you are banding together to stop Russia from taking over you. So mm. NATO is a self-defense pact and under no circumstances does NATO pact. ever attack yeah. first. Yeah. You know, I understand Russia's point of view. I do think it's kind of nonsensical because it is purely a defense pact. Then, of course, the USSR tried to join NATO, uh, perhaps half-heartedly, asked to join and they were like, no. And to them, that solidified that it was an anti-Russian, anti-Soviet alliance. And to a certain extent it is, but it's, it is purely defense. Russia's choice to create problems has only hurt them severely the sanctions are terrible the taking crimea has blown their economy it does not make any mm-hmm. logical sense for them to keep doing what they're doing especially if invading ukraine creates a head-on war with nato not ideal for them in theory russia could do a very quick first strike a defeat nato pretty quickly nato can last longer because the industrial power of the nato countries is significantly higher than russia and its wildest dreams they both say both have 10,000 tanks and Russia defeats NATO's 10,000 tanks. If you don't count the tank stockpiles and graveyards you have here in the United States, they can produce just infinitely more tanks than Russia ever could. So it's, um, it's not a fair fight. Russia knows that, which is why it's so weird that they keep pushing. But the only explanation for it is that it's done out of fear to a certain extent. And then you have Belarus, which is basically owned by Russia at this point. What's going on there? Belarus has a dictator, Lukashenko, by all means, a Russian puppet. When people were mm-hmm. protesting against him, he basically accepted help from Russia to suppress it. And so mm-hmm. now he is, by all means, a dictator and right in Russia's pocket. And it's not uncommon to see people call it Belarusia. It is very much a Russian thing. And I believe Lukashenko went to Russia asking to just become part of Russia. And I don't know whatever happened with that. Clearly, it's not part of Russia right now. Belarus is very much partner of Russia. Then you have like this weird strategic partnership between China and Russia who everyone's yeah. like, oh, they, they work they together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they're, they don't work together oh. because China and Russia are, have always been enemies and they may be friendly right now, but there's no reason to believe that that would last especially because Russia thinks of itself as a European country, especially because all of its people live in Europe. There's really nothing in the Far East uh, when it comes to Russia, very little. And so China and Russia are bound to duke it out over Central Asia. And while Central Asia is still very much in Russia's hands, China would like to make a move that way. And so they'll very much be willing to duke it out, not in open warfare, at least I don't think so but perhaps in um, you know, covert ops or uh, you know, what you've kind of been seeing in Africa with mercenary warfare. And so they are not friends. They're not allies. It is a fiction uh, and a misunderstanding from the American view as to how they 
get along. If China invades Taiwan tomorrow, Russia's not going to invade Ukraine to help them out. Russia doesn't really particularly care what China does with Taiwan. And I don't think China particularly cares what Russia does with Ukraine. They are not allies. It's similar to how in World War II, Germany and Japan, Mm -hmm. everyone thinks of the coordination between the United States and the United Kingdom and the USSR, right? And you think they one coherent team. No, Germany and Japan really didn't talk all that much. Probably weren't that very aware of each other's battle plans, nor did they really care. That's kind of the same situation here with Russia and China. They don't really care what the other one's up to. There's some kind of strategic ability here, but they're not going to war to defend each other. That's for certain. Especially since Russia is a declining power and China is a rising power, right? It's not a fair exchange. And Putin understands that, that China has no reason to go along with uh, Russia's games, right? And so Russia really sees the same way. We have no incentive to help you out whatsoever. Let's face it. If China wants to move north in Asia, they will. And there's really not much Russia can do about it because there's no one lives there. And there is the whole climate change narrative that Russia will, you know, they'll have a glow up because of the Siberian tundra melting. That's true to a certain extent, but not like, not in this, you know, dramatic way of Russia will like flourish and it'll be sunshine and rainbows and we're going to move New York City to Siberia. It'll help Russia, but it's not going to return them to the global stage. You're saying that Russia is over here doing its thing. It wants Ukraine. It wants to kind of grow downwards almost. China essentially wants the same thing. So they're both having similar goals. And for that reason, they're not going to be buddy-buddy. Right now, they're both focused on their individual invasions, but when it comes down to the wire, they're not going to be friends sort of deal. Correct. Caspian Report reported earlier this year, 80% of Eastern Russia will become Chinese by 2050. So the logical progression there is, as as he suggests, it is an existential threat to Russia. It's just an example of how volatile the situation is between them and that they, they border each other. It's not like one is on one continent, the other is there. No, they, they border each other and they've gone deliberately out of their way to make sure they don't share at that many borders with each other. Even Mongolia uh, is a big flashpoint and that China would like Mongolia and Russia in the past has also wanted Mongolia, but neither one of them grab it because of the provocation is to the other side there, right? In fact, the USSR wanted to nuke China over their pursuit of Mongolia. Do you know what country has been threatened to be nuked the most out of all of them? North Korea. China. China has been threatened to be nuked by Russia, the USSR, the United States, and the UK. And it like goes up to like 13 times. And at none recently, uh, well, maybe recently, maybe there's a Trump time. He like tweeted something about it. Oh. Mostly it was just the USSR wanted to do it over Mongolia. And then when they were fighting in a different war, the United States did it several times over Taiwan, the UK over Hong Kong. For a while there, until uh, China got their own nuclear bombs, they were kind of just uh, being threatened with nukes, which is explains their outward posture towards the rest of the world, if we're being right. honest, right? Yeah, no trust. Right. You think Taiwan's yours in 1950, and this power from far away across the ocean is like, we're going to nuke you. And the only ones who have nukes kind of just like, no, screw these guys. Taiwan used to be a part of China, like back in one of the dynasties. Is that the situation? Why are they? So Taiwan, yeah, it's kind of like a pair of pants at Goodwill and that everyone at one point has owned them. So Taiwan was owned by Japan at one point. There were indigenous people there. I believe at one point Vietnam had a claim and then China also had it. So basically what happened is Japan took Taiwan from China 
right? During mm-hmm. the Chinese Civil War, during the beginning of World War II, the war in the Pacific, they begin that, Japan takes it. I don't think the United States liberates Taiwan, but I think they push a Japanese surrender. So then they give Taiwan back to China. And so meanwhile, uh, Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek are fighting this civil war in China over control of the kingdom, right? And Mao Zedong's forces conveniently sat out World War II and Chiang Kai-shek fought basically on his own. And so Chiang Kai-shek, for all intents and purposes, uh, sometimes in the United States, we like glorify him because he is the opposite to communism. But Chiang Kai-shek was a fascist. He was pretty brutal. So what Mao Zedong was on the far left, Chiang Kai-shek was on the far right, a fascist by all intents. So Chiang Kai-shek loses civil war. He flees to Taiwan. And the United States is like, you're not communism. You get the island. Congrats. You're the winner. <laughs> and um, so they give him this thing. And Mao Zedong, really, the China kind of lacks the capability to take it over, right? But also, it doesn't help the United States places the Navy in the middle of the strait, threatens nuclear weapons several times, threatens the full-out scale. And China at this point is people are still living in huts in China, right? In the United States, you're living in the suburban neighborhood and being racist, right? And so that is what you're doing in 1950s America. In China, though, you know, they're, they're pretty poor still. So there's really, there's no competition here. So China kind of lays off it for a while. And then in the 90s, they go back at it. Clinton kind of steps in the way there. And then you have the evolution of the one China policy. The United States acknowledges China's claim to Taiwan. Like it acknowledges that China has that claim, but it doesn't agree with the claim or accept the claim. It just says, it's like, if you told me, I like the color red and I still believe your favorite color is blue. Like I accept that I understand that your favorite color is red but I believe it's blue. Mm. Very vague, doesn't really make sense. And so that is the situation in Taiwan is Chiang Kai-shek fled there. Now for very many years, Chiang Kai-shek was a repressive government in Taiwan, very repressive and a lot of abuse, just as corrupt as China. And then in the 90s, they kind of took a turn and now they're a democracy of 25 million people and they have rights. The legacy of Chiang Kai-shek and the abusive government that followed is not exactly the greatest, but... Taiwan has turned the page to better beginnings and, you know, it's something worth acknowledging. I don't think China has a lot of room to critique government. Yeah. They consistently make their make their own PR mistakes. They just destroy their own economy, you know, essentially. Right. Like the whole Evergrande situation and then what happened with the gaming companies, what happened with the for-profit education companies. Another interesting thing is Wall Street remains invested in China. Besides all that, Um, especially when it comes to, you know, like you said, these crimes against humanity, what is the moral culpability of your average American, right? When it comes to supporting companies who do business in China, it's pretty much all companies. When I was playing out different scenarios in my head around what could happen with the the Olympics and all this stuff, it's worst case scenario. So maybe this would be the second to worst case scenario. So worst case scenario of the World War III. And then I think the scenario, maybe a couple steps below that would be we just completely shut out business with China. And so if we think about like how many products that we import from China and how reliant we are on them from a global supply chain perspective, like the inflation that we're experiencing now compared to what it could be if we just lose that aspect of, of imports. So I think that right. it's just so delicate. It's so delicate. Do you think World War III would come from the U.S. boycott in the Olympics? The way that I think about stuff is dominoes. So I don't think like directly, oh, they come in, you you're not letting us do the Olympics. Like <laughs> you're game over, buddy. The way that Russia and China seem to me uh, as an outsider, as somebody who's still learning geopolitics, is they seem very sensitive. They, they, they would just feel obligated to push the U.S. back. And I don't know how hard they would push back if that did happen. Yeah. 
Sensitive is an interesting way to describe them. (laughs) Even the situation with Lithuania, the fact that any country has an embassy for Taiwan, which China has said, no, don't recognize it. Don't think about it. Don't even look at it. It's Taiwan. Don't (laughs) stop. You know? Oh, no, you're absolutely right. But uh, yeah, they're more than Russia. Simply, Russia and the United States know each other like the back of their hand, right? If you want to know something about American society, if you can't have an American tell you, go to Canada. And if you can't go to Canada, then your probably next best bet is going to the Kremlin. The United States and Russia get into these war of words. It's just that they've been doing it for, you know, pretty intimately for 75 years since the Cold War. It goes back further than that, back to the beginning of the 1900s. So they understand each other and Russia's really not that sensitive. They just do whatever they want. China is very sensitive. Like you said, if you even look at Taiwan the wrong way, man, you're sleeping on the couch for the rest of the week. The troll farms actually represent this as well in that their posture online through these is that if I put a, you know, a graphic of China in my video at all, even if it's like a throwaway joke, just hounded instantly. And it's probably um, a flagged account to them. But that goes, expands the point though, that they're so sensitive to any criticism from the outside that they are willing to pay millions of people to be online trolls. Just last year, 498 million internet posts were made what they believe to be Chinese troll farms. It's a weird way to project power. So yeah, they're very sensitive. We have all this stuff going on in Russia and China. There is some tensions simmering here in the United States as well, aren't there? As always, as always. Um, So Arizona's trying to pass this bill, and I shouldn't say they're trying to, they will. And it basically what it does is allows the state legislature to decide that, you know, they don't care about the results in their state, the voting, what the people say. It'll be up to the state legislature to allocate the electoral votes themselves. And this is a bill that's pretty much being passed around most red states. And it is, uh, it's probably the number one threat facing the United States, right? Because at, at the end of the day, we can all show up to the polls and vote, right? Hopefully, this Democratic Congress, Democratic Senate, and they can work with the Republican senators as well to end the filibuster on the For the People Act. But you pass widespread, making it easier for people to vote. That's always good when people can vote. Um, but at the end of the day, that doesn't really matter when state legislatures can just decide we don't like the results of this and just cast their ballots elsewhere. But this is really a profound problem across the board because you may still have democracy in the sense that you can vote, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if they don't accept the vote. Yeah. Right. If they don't accept the actual results and they just assign them wherever they want to go. And so dictatorship uh, colloquially known as. Yeah. Yes. That would be a, yeah, that'd be a dictatorship. So you're really faced with this troubling prospect of, and people often think that you're being um, hyperbolistic when you say that uh, 2024 could be the last election the United States has, right? It does sound very hyperbolistic, right? But it's also with these bills that are being passed feasibly, if you know you go and vote and Arizona decides that Joe Biden didn't win the state again, then you're kind of out of luck, right? And they just cast them to Donald Trump or Donald Trump Jr., or Tucker Carlson or Laura Trump or Ivanka Trump, Eric Trump, mm-hmm. Barron, Melania, uh, whichever Trump they decide to inherit, uh, give the empire to. So that's, you know, kind of the problem here right and so if they can just do that and validate the results you really have no elections and you're really ending the rule of law and you're really ending democracy entirely inside the united states and people argue we're not democracy we're republic republics are actually a form of democracy and so this also broadens and strengthens the case for abolishing the electoral college 
but that mm. is for a different time. But what's interesting about the Electoral College is that Alexander Hamilton lays it out as the case for, you know, you use it to override when someone's not qualified to be president, okay? It is up to the state legislatures to make their decision on it, right? What's interesting about that is that while that is what spawned the Electoral College, it's never been used that way, like ever. In Pennsylvania, the started off, they held elections and the people determined who the state legislature voted for. So it's never worked that way. And so wanting it to work that way is um, dodgy at best. That is certainly the motive here and the state legislature things to undermine the election, to want to assign the electoral votes to someone else is that it's about holding power indefinitely about holding power forever and never handing it over so not uh not ideal one could say it's not ideal one might say <laughs> one might utter the notion <laughs> it, it's it's terrifying and it's really it really it's why the united states was listed as a backsliding democracy for the first time ever today we have to do something right i think there's not a long-term level calculation here because if say Arizona passed this, Wisconsin passed it, Florida does whatever Florida wants, but you know, say Georgia also does the same in Pennsylvania as well. If they all do the same, what happens then when, you know, say Joe Biden runs again or the rock, you know, the rock runs and um, he wins, but they end up giving the votes to Ron DeSantis or Mike Huckabee. Mm. <laughs> they get the votes of that person. What does that say long-term, right? Because seldomly do these things ever happen. And that's the kind of the situation that you see in China is that when the breakdown of a rule of law happens, the the fights that happen, whether violent and in the house, happen between people on the far right and the people on the far left. You never see someone who is a centrist fighting in a revolt. What do you think the results are there? I don't think they certainly don't spell good future for the country. That's for certain. I don't know, Kyla. I, will we have democracy? I don't know. Um, yeah. There's a lot of stuff coming. We got the debt ceiling coming up here in a month or so. Just got a new. Let me just get rid of it already. What is the deal with that? Hey, tell me no, your thoughts. It's a party. Every time we get to decide if we're gonna raise <laughs> it or not, it's just a really big party, and everyone gets together and like yells at each other. It's so beautiful. Bipartisanship is just like the most beautiful <laughs> thing, in my opinion. <laughs> I, so I see your argument. Okay, we can keep the debt ceiling. No, we should get rid of it. I, I think we okay. should get rid of it because at this point, you have debt finance growth. That's essentially what you have to have at, at this level. But I would also add, and I, the debt ceiling is just about paying the bills. You already bought the dinner, man. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You just yeah. got to pay the check now. It's like disputing what? with your landlord about rent. You know, it's like <laughs> live here. You don't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, absolutely. It's ridiculous. It's purely an arbitrary thing either. It's not in the Constitution anywhere. No. Uh, nowhere does it say they need to do this. It's the party who's the minority pushing mm -hmm. every single time, pushing it to the line. And then they're like, oh, look at us. We didn't do it this time. But one of these times, they're going to mess up, right? All right, Ben, thanks so much for coming on and talking about everything geopolitical with me. This was so insightful and so helpful for sort of building a framework around the things that are going on. It is so important to kind of understand the, the global stage. So thank you again. Yes, thank you for having me, Kyla. You guys can follow me at D1Wheeler on Twitter um, and you can voice your complaints. We'll have to do it again. Thanks so much for spending time with me. I will see you soon and goodbye.